Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Congenital heart disease is much more common than people realise. This is cardiac surgeon Dr Alan Kerr. About one out of every hundred uh, babies born uh, has a heart defect of some sort. Kia ora, I'm Sonia Yee, and in this episode of Eyewitness, we're looking at New Zealand's first open-heart surgery. It was performed 62 years ago, in September 1958. It was a progressive, groundbreaking event using new surgical techniques that drew attention from the International Medical Fraternity. It's since changed the lives of people born with heart conditions and was performed at Auckland's Greenland Hospital by Sir Brian Barrett Boys. Brian Barrett Boys went from Palmerston North Hospital, where he was working at that time, uh, to the Mayo Clinic. One of the world's most prestigious hospitals in the United States, where scientists and doctors specialise in treating serious and rare conditions. And he was recruited back to Green Lane uh, by uh, Sir Douglas Robb, head of the Green Lane unit. Dr Kerr was mentored by Barrett Boys in the early stages of his career and later spent the better part of three decades working with him. I'd heard about him first because he'd preceded me at at, uh, Wellington Hospital about four years earlier. Well, I worked with him as a a research fellow and registrar in the early 1960s. Then I had to complete my general surgical training, but I went back to Green Lane as a, a consultant surgeon in 1966. Brian facilitated my training in America with John Kirkland, his own mentor, who was then working at the University of Alabama. I did read that some people described him as aggressive and autocratic, so when you actually met him, how did he come across? Brian was uh, very charismatic and charming, highly intelligent. He was a very driven person, and uh, that did tend to antagonise some of the Wellington general surgeons who uh, belonged to the old school of surgery. But he was certainly very popular with uh, junior staff, I think, and the uh, nursing staff there. I heard very good things about his uh, abilities as a surgeon and uh, his uh, popularity around the hospital. Do you think that he experienced any of that kind of tall poppy syndrome or any kind of rivalry or competition locally? Yes, there certainly was an element of that uh, uh, quite big time, really. I think in the early days, people thought that that the heart-lung machine would never really work. Other people in the medical profession were very sceptical about uh, doing these operations. They thought that the they might only provide a temporary increase in survival. And this later came to limit funding, this attitude. But in the early days, the whole project was very well supported, both by the Ministry of Health and by the Auckland Hospital Board. Before 1946, mortality rates for babies born with congenital heart disease or heart defects were very high. In fact, 
The situation was grim. Uh, there was no effective treatment. Many of those uh, die in early infancy. Some survive to be disabled and die prematurely. And some actually are minor and even recover spontaneously. But that's not to say that there weren't experts on the case. There were various attempts made by surgical professionals around the world, including a procedure in 1943 known as the Blaylock-Tauzig operation, a surgical procedure used to increase blood flow to the lungs in some forms of congenital heart disease. The first big breakthrough was an operation done outside the heart by Alfred Blaylock at the um, Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. The cardiologist was Dr Helen Tausig, and this was internationally big news at the time. Up till 1954, there had been 17 attempts to correct defects inside the heart using the first heart-lung machines to support the circulation while the heart was stopped. The heart-lung machine that was sent to New Zealand was called the Melrose machine. Uh, Brian had actually worked with it in Bristol for a period of six months. Now, the way the Melrose machine worked was like this. What we still do is to put cannulae tubes into the big veins draining blood back to the heart to drain blood to the machine, and the blood from the machine is pumped back into the arterial circulation. Uh, in those days, it was back to the femoral artery in the groin. Nowadays, it's almost always back to the aorta where it comes out of the heart. So that allows the aorta to be clamped that stops the circulation through the coronary arteries that supply the heart itself, and the heart stops. It's possible to then open the heart and correct the defect, close it again, restore the coronary blood flow, and the heart beats again. There are various other additions to this uh, nowadays. So the idea with the Melrose machine was to get it up and running as quickly as possible, except... Yeah, there was a bit of a hiccup with the machine. It came with missing parts. And on top of that, there was no instruction manual. So imagine getting your head around a piece of machinery with missing parts, no instruction manual, and having to work it out at a time where there's no such thing as the internet. It is true. Yes, there were parts that uh, had to be made here in New Zealand, and they were manufactured uh, by the DSIR, the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research, that was later terminated. There were actually months, I think, of work developing the Melrose machine. It was uh, quite radically modified by the perfusionist or the technician who runs the heart-lung machine. A man by the name of Sid Yarrow. Sid Yarrow not only did that, he also built recording equipment for the uh, cardiac uh, catheterisation laboratory. Uh, he was also involved in the development of early pacemakers, which, all of which were essential to the whole project. He was also assisted by technician Alfred Melville. A DSIR engineer. They modified the machine. This kind of uh, innovation was going on in, in uh, various units around the world at that time. And did we mention the size of this machine? It was a beast. It was quite a big machine. It was a diabolical thing to run. At one stage, we had seven separate pumps to control. And the best part? The Melrose was being prepared for one special little girl. She was about 10 or 11 years old at the time. Her name was Helen Arnold, 
I was born a blue baby. I was born at six weeks early. I had a heart attack. I was born with a hole between the right and left ventricles, quite a large hole about the size of a half crown. Born and raised in Christchurch, she also had six other siblings. As a child, Helen couldn't play and do sports like her classmates. She tired easily and found herself breathless and exhausted. When Mum used to take us to town or take us to the doctors or anything, I used to get put in a pushchair because I just got too tired. I, I couldn't keep up with everybody else. Prior to the operation, Helen had the chance to meet Barrett boys and was flown up to Green Lane Hospital in Auckland. She also knew about the preparation that was underway for the Melrose machine. I had a, a catheter operation where they put the dyes through to find out what is wrong with the heart. And I was there for about a fortnight. They'd been working for two years previously to get the heart-lung machine up and running. They'd done 17 sheep before me. There was a lot of planning and preparation that was needed in the lead-up to the first open-heart surgery, including selecting the right candidate. There was six children chosen. They all had heart condition troubles, from babies to my age, because I was the eldest. There was little Mary boys and the odd other colours. The surgical procedure was also incredibly risky. Back to Dr Kerr. Most of the first operations were done on older children because it was technically easier to do the surgery on somebody bigger rather than a baby. The early blood uh, heart-lung machines uh, did damage the blood to some extent, uh, and this prevented them from being used on small babies because the amount of donor blood required to prime these cumbersome machines uh, was uh, much greater than the volume of the baby's blood, and the baby's blood got damaged, and children under the age of one really survived surgery. At that time, the red cells uh, became fragmented, and the haemoglobin in them was released into the blood. The babies were at risk of whole-body poisoning. So what were the risks for Helen? It was either life or death. It was black and white. Your parents were prepared to put, take that risk for you, Hmm. I was in quite a bad way. I don't know fully, but I wouldn't have had much life left. Helen's parents were certain it was the only option for her. Their response in a follow-up interview with Sir Barrett Boys was this. We came to get Helen to have the operation so that she could get on with life. Sir Brian Barrett Boys took it that they were happy to, to go ahead and that's why we were chosen. But the operation wouldn't have been possible without a wider team. There were anaesthetists and cardiologists, physiologists all involved before the big day in September 1958. The team familiarised themselves with it. It consisted of a long perspex cylinder with a central spindle that a series of about, a, I think, nearly 100 stainless steel discs were mounted on. These discs rotated into blood in the bottom of the cylinder and carried blood on the surface of the discs up into an atmosphere of oxygen so that as blood passed gradually through this thing, venous blood, blue blood, came out the other end red, oxygenated blood. The risks were significant, but they took great care to make the operation successful. 
The day had finally come for Helen's operation. And that morning, something had also happened in Sir Barrett Boy's family. He had just had number six boy, Stephen, that morning of my operation. That was at Hubba's five in the morning. And one can only assume he hadn't slept that much. But still, he was rearing to go. It was also a big life-changing day for everyone involved. He came in and he wanted to get me going and get me well. By half past seven that morning, Helen was prepped for theatre. I was in theatre for six hours. My parents that day spent a lot of hours walking up and down Wintry Hill. The operation was a success. I think I woke up the next day or late in the night. Helen was moved into an isolated room surrounded by machines and tubes. But four days later, her health began deteriorating. It was unexpected. At the same time, one of the hospital staff tripped over one of her tubes. That's when the doctors realised that something in the operation had gone wrong. They had put a patch where the hole was, stitching the four corners at the bottom of her heart, but it was putting too much pressure on the surrounding skin, pulling the mesh through, and the site had become infected. They put stitches in round the heart, and they didn't hold. A second operation was needed, but fortunately, Helen recovered quickly. It, it was successful operation because I came through it and I was still alive. It's been just over 60 years since Sir Barrett Boys performed that operation on Helen. Afterwards, it helped to put his work on the map. Medical professionals from around the world visited Green Lane to meet Sir Barrett Boys and observe subsequent procedures. Green Lane was one of the first units around the world to uh, do this kind of, of surgery. I mentioned the Mayo Clinic. There were th three or four centres in America doing it then, notably Christian Barnard in, in uh, Cape Town. The English were slower off the mark, but they got going a bit later. Green Lane was recognised within the cardiac uh, surgical community fairly early on as being a, a potential centre of excellence. But it really became recognised a few years later, not much later, 1962, uh, shortly after I joined the department. Brian uh, replaced a uh, 14-year-old girl's uh, aortic valve with a, a human valve, a homograft, allograft, uh, successfully. And uh, that was really the first thing that put New Zealand on the international map. So Brian Barrett Boys passed away in March 2006, and today, open-heart surgery, or cardiopulmonary surgery, is performed on a regular basis. As for Helen, later in life, she also had four pacemakers, which helped to keep her heart beating. So how does she feel about having been part of this incredible medical history? Unfortunately, a lot of people just laugh at me when I turn around and sort of say, well, I was the first one. They don't fully comprehend because... Uh, most young people, they seem to think I'm a bit dippy. And it's quite upsetting, really. I don't sort of fit with any other organisation to mix with people because everybody that had the operation round about my time have passed on. I'm the only one. So you feel that sense of isolation? Yes. I haven't got anybody to talk to about it. But, importantly, 
Helen has had the life that her parents had always hoped for and one she never expected to experience. I've got on with doing everything most people have done. I have had a family, two children. They didn't expect me to live this long. I could have gone at any any time when I was little. I think the uh, medical science for allowing me to have been able to live this. That was Helen Harris Nee Arnold. You also heard Dr Alan Kerr. And I'm Sonia Yee. If you'd like to listen to this episode or any other episodes from the Eyewitness series, head to rnz.co.nz forward slash eyewitness or wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you next time. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.